The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the California Board of Regents, or whistleblowers everywhere. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the August 11th, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. In the first segment, employment law attorney Teresa McQueen walks us through the complexities of pandemic conditions and protections of the workplace as rescue packages are being implemented. In the second segment, Madeline Hernice, CEO of Families Forward, has some updates as families need surge this far into the pandemic. Welcome back to the show. Returning to the program is my first guest, Teresa McQueen, employment law attorney and principal of her practice, Sapphire Legal, based in Orange County. We're going to move through the timeline of the unfolding of the pandemic, the various congressional relief packages being adopted and being negotiated as we speak, as they all pertain to employee and employer legal protections a veritable work in progress, as she'll point out. Teresa helps people on both sides of the employment coin avoid harmful life-changing developments at the workplace, discrimination, harassment, and retaliation. Teresa formed her Sapphire legal practice four years ago in Orange County after seeing the need for a different type of employment law firm, one which combines her litigation and transactional experience to provide employers and employees with education, training, and legal advice on establishing and maintaining successful workplace relationships. Teresa's published numerous articles for legal journals and handbooks, is regularly on the speaking circuit, and hosts a podcast called Workplace Perspectives. Prior to founding Sapphire Legal Practice, she was a partner at Peterson and McQueen Law Firm. An OC Bar Association member, she is, was the past president of the Bar Association solo small firm section. Teresa has been recognized as the Southern California Super Lawyers Rising Star, top women attorney by Law and Politics, and publishers of Los Angeles Magazine. She comes to us today from her home. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. Now it's Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor, Teresa McQueen. Hi, Claudia. Thank you for having me back. Well, it's always good to tap into your expertise. So let's start with the month of March when the lockdown was closing down businesses in so many sectors. But before we get to the micro level of the workplace policies, would you like to comment on the impact of the very fragmenting messaging that's been happening nonstop since March, how that fragmented messaging has an impact on workplace protections. Well, it's been really interesting when around March, around the time that you're talking about, what was happening was because there was so much misinformation and disinformation that people were actually turning to their employers as a trusted source. Really? Information. Oh. Yeah, it was, a, it was a really great trend and in turn, you know, talking to employers, making sure that, look, the employees are giving this trust to you and, you know, need to make sure that you're relying on solid sources. So, you know, recommendation, myself, my colleagues, we're all to find something, you know, find an agency that, you know, trust. And at that point, a lot of people were relying on the CDC, the WHO, and of course, OSHA. So I thought that was a great trend, though, that people really were looking to their employers to give them honest information about what they needed to know as far as the workplace. And is that you were saying in preparation for this interview that you were really, really very busy with work in the, the beginnings of this pandemic. And so was it that kind of work that you were working with the employers to sort of send out best practices messages to their uh, employee? Yeah, absolutely. It was a really interesting time, super, super busy. And part of being super busy was, of course, everyone was pivoting to remote work. And right. so not, yeah, not every employer has remote policies. So there was a lot of 
getting temporary remote work policies in place and how those were going to be implemented, which jobs qualified, which didn't. And then of course, there came the new relief measures. So we went from trying to figure out, you know, okay, so what's the governor's latest order? What's CDC saying? What's the WHO? What's OSHA saying? To make sure everybody knew what was going on and what they had to do. And then So it kind of turned from trying to worry about what was going on in the state and the effect of the governor's orders, and then the federal relief efforts took place. So there was the CARES Act, which brought the emergency family medical leave provisions and the emergency paid sick leave provisions. So that was another really busy time period, just writing out memos and FAQs for employers so they could, uh, you know, message with their employees. So it was a super busy time. And because things were changing and with the last couple of legislative cycles in California, we've had a lot of changes in employment law, but that doesn't hold true for every year. Um, And so to have so much change, especially on the federal level, it was very interesting from a practice perspective and to have to, you know, get up to speed on the new federal acts. And there's a lot of moving pieces with that and trying to get it all ingested, understood, and then uh, sort of put back out there for the employers to be able to understand it and to implement. Really busy, fun, stressful time. So we're uh, mindful, all of us, that there were lots of complexities with just understanding the public health part of what kinds of best practices we were all supposed to be adopting. But you're, you're giving us a whole extra overlay of what the workplace considerations were. So I I can't imagine any more moving parts. And with the stakes being so high, it's only about some, it was a matter of life and death. Yeah, exactly. And it was at the very beginning, so with everybody, it was pretty clear, you know, when the governor's uh, shelter in place order came down, everyone was pretty clear what they had to do. They had to figure out a way to get everybody out of the workplace. Yeah, and how are we gonna do that? And who's essential and how does that work? So, you know, once we started bumping along and what seems like a relatively short period of time now, started immediately thinking about pivoting back. So then in doing that and in that interim period, there was a lot of legislature put out on the federal level because of the pandemic, because the president ordered the pandemic. And that's important because that releases federal funds for state purposes. So then the EDD could, they got the extra money to provide unemployment benefits. They were able to expand unemployment benefits. So there was a component of figuring out how that worked um, and being able to explain to the employees where to go to get the information that they needed. And then of course, when you're talking about pivoting back and coming back into the workplace, you have all of the issues that were impacted by the federal legislation or the federal benefits that were available and trying to figure out how to apply those federal benefits with people either not being able to work remotely or once we started pivoting back. So once we started pivoting back, which was relatively, seems now like a relatively short amount of time, people started thinking about how we can bring everybody back to work safely and more and more guidelines were being issued at that time. And so that was a lot of policy focus. And then once we moved into actually, you know, businesses bringing people back to work, then there were a lot of issues with regard to benefits and that brought in the federal benefits that were being implemented at the time. So there, the president uh, declares a pandemic that releases federal funds to the states when should they ask for them, which California did to be able to increase their unemployment benefits. So there was that component and employers being able to have the information to tell the employees where to go to get the information they needed with regard to unemployment issues. Then there's the Federal CARES Act that added an additional couple of layers for leave benefits with regard to COVID-related issues. So there was federal changes made to the Family Medical Leave Act, and then an actual implementation of federal paid sick leave. So there were a lot of moving parts, uh, a lot of things to get there, you know, for employers to get their heads around, to be able to explain to the employees and then to be able to implement themselves. So, so there also, to add to those complexities, there were tracks. There were essential workers, like first responders, I'm thinking schools, 
from K through 12 to higher ed. There were nursing home employees. There were retail workers like grocery workers, meat packing, and farm workers. So I'm not sure which of those were maybe your clientele, but you sort of had those that had to be working in their regular place of employee. And so there are protections that may or may not have been following them, those essential workers that had to remain at their regular employee. Yeah, there were a lot of things that were put in place with regard for protections for essential workers. For At one point, there was a governor's order that was requiring, I can't remember exactly the specific language, but it had to do with providing for childcare for essential workers. Yes. So, um, and that freed up some after-school programs and daycare programs to come back online, at least for essential workers. So that was one of the provisions that helped. And then one of the other things that the governor did had to do with workers' compensation. He put out an order that provided for a rebuttable presumption that if someone is working for an employer and contracts COVID-19, that if they contracted it while they were performing work for the employer, then it would be covered under a workers' comp claim. It would be considered a workplace injury. Now, that's a rebuttable presumption. Um, Which means that the the employer would challenge the employee's claim that it was a workplace injury? Yes. So the employer has the ability to challenge that claim. Um, Well, how is that working? (laughs) You know, I don't really know that everything has been so backed up. I really haven't gotten much feedback about that. And I don't know, honestly, how many employees have. I know that employees, you know, now that we are, the majority of of businesses are back to work in some fashion. Mm -hmm. Um, People are experiencing employees who are testing positive. Um, But I don't know. I haven't heard much, at least from uh, my clients or any of my colleagues, about how that's working out if, if employees are actually taking advantage of that and making uh, workplace claims to get the benefits of a workplace uh, coverage under workers' comp for that, I haven't really heard. Well, but in, and in preparation for this interview, you mentioned that employers may be using social media as evidence of maybe not careful navigation in the public of their employees where they might not have been, uh, they might have been in crowds and subjecting themselves to not good COVID conditions. And so, well, the- right. And, and I, I don't know that that's, if that's an option. So the way that okay. a rebuttable presumption works is the governor's order says, again, that if you're working for an employer, you contract COVID-19, it is presumed that you contracted it in the workplace. The employer has the ability, if they choose to do so, to rebut that. One of the ways they can, of course, rebut that with whatever evidence they have, which would um, show that it's the employees' outside activities, you know, that actually contributed to them contracting COVID-19 as opposed to having them contracted in the workplace. The issue really comes down to workplace safety. Um, exactly. And, and the employer's duty to provide a healthy and safe work environment. So from that perspective, there are some responsibilities on both sides. And we kind of talked a little bit about that when we were talking about the program. So, you know, the employers have a duty to provide a healthy and safe work environment. And there's lots of information out there on how to do that. There's CDC guidelines, there's WHO guidelines, there's OSHA guidelines. So in pivoting back, you know, employers were really taking the initiative to tell employees We want you to come back. We've created the safest environment that we can. We've done X, Y, and Z, whatever that might be, in accordance with these guidelines. So that's their responsibility from an employer perspective. And I do think that there is some responsibility on the employee's part to take advantage of that healthy environment and to take some responsibility for their own actions to make sure that not only does the workplace stay healthy and safe for them, but for everybody else. Uh, because what we do outside of the workplace in this regard could definitely carry into the workplace and impact our coworkers. So I brought up to you in advance, and you could talk to the point of how obligated is the employer to disclose COVID positive results amongst employees? Well, that's a bit of a tricky situation. As far as reporting numbers go, there's nothing out there that says that employer has to report specific numbers. Not to, to their employees, they're not required. 
Well, I'm talking more generally. I have a lot of clients asking if they have to report numbers to health authorities. And from that regard, they don't because wherever those people are getting tested, that is where it gets in. Yeah. Right. The numbers are being reported that way. When it comes to the workplace, it's been a bit of a gray area because there's nothing out there that provides a lot of guidance with regard to what an employer is required to do. Again, it all boils down to, you know, a healthy and safe work environment. And so if an employer chooses not to disclose and the workplace becomes people are, people are testing positive and they can trace it back to the workplace, then that employer's simply opening themselves up for liability for not having disclosed and not taking appropriate. Okay. Cause I know it's, it's an actual case where the retailer has that I'm speaking of, and I certainly, this is not exhausted. It's anecdotal that that retailer has one. And then the next day there were two and then two or three days later, there were three positive COVID cases and the employees in that retailing firm did not have any information, sort of they're posting on social media that it's happening and they're trying to get coverage. So that's journalism is to cover where that's happening. But in terms of, so this, this gets back to all of what you've talked in previous programs about the importance of workplace culture. What are they what are they as employers obligated to set the tone for a the best practices every employee ought to be adopting round the clock b what the employer is seizes as a responsibility to bring all the necessary equipment to protect the workers at the workplace right and i think the reason that that there hasn't been any hard and fast lines about it is because you one rule can't really speak to all industry is my feeling just my I have a client who you know early on when they brought every they were they're actually essential so they've had workers working throughout this and the first time they had someone test positive in the workplace they shut the whole place down brought in an outside cleaning crew cost them thirty thousand dollars well, you can't do that. It's not feasible to do that every time somebody tests positive in the workplace. Now, this employer could afford to do that, but is that, you know, if you end up with multiple people testing positive in a workplace in different areas, I mean, how do you handle that? It becomes a judgment call for the employer, what they can actually do. Is it feasible to shut an entire factory down and clean everything? In some cases, yes. A small retail place, makes perfect sense to shut down for a day, bring in a a cleaning crew, clean everything out and start all over again. It's just a matter of of what works. And I don't know if there's any one rule that fits and I don't really have the answer to how to make that work. But I do think that transparency, Yes. there are so many protections in place right now and so many ways to handle it that it just doesn't seem to make sense to damage your relationship with your employees from an employer perspective just doesn't make sense to damage that relationship with the employees when things could be handled in a way that would be safe for everybody. So if remote work isn't maybe the best, but if the workplace can't get a handle on positive testing, whether that's because the workplace is not, you know, taking health and safety seriously, or the employees aren't taking health and safety seriously, there's obviously an issue. So there's remote work, there's you know, there's leave, there's, there's all kinds of things to do to try to address the situation, but there's just no one way that's going to work. So to the point about workplace culture as well, what are the responsibilities of the employer to set the tone for how patrons of the business conduct themselves? Well, I think it all really stems back to the same thing as far as that goes. That's the health and safety issue. Um, So if part of providing that safe and healthy work environment is managing the people that come into the workplace, then that is the employer's responsibility. But what they don't, you know, what nobody tells you how to do is to how to handle that. Exactly. That's the problem with really admittedly low wage earners are being added additional responsibilities not in their tool chest, correct? And that they're, they're having to navigate and decelerate these kind of mounting confrontations 
and the, the retail is always trying to make the, the customers always right. They're working around that with the customer. No, the customer has been pretty, pretty bad. Well, it's, it's really interesting. I think I shared with you that I had read an article, an uh, interview with the CEO of Delta Airlines. Yes. And the way that they're handling it through Delta is kind of interesting. They have a system where they make it very clear that you are to wear a mask on the plane in the airport and on the plane, once you get on the plane, they've implemented all of these really apparently very wonderful safety protocols. They've enhanced their safety protocols a lot. So if a passenger refuses to keep the mask on once they get on the airplane, including just pulling it down, leaving their nose out and just covering their mouth, they'll come over and ask them to, you know, I'm sorry, but you have to wear, you know, it's Delta policy, you have to wear your mask. So they'll ask them very nicely to please do that. Round one. Okay. Round one. If they don't. If round they two. Still, yeah. Round two is they're apparently they give them a card that explains Delta's policy very clearly, asks them again to please comply. And if they don't, apparently rather than continue to confront, those individuals are met um, when the plane lands by, I don't know if it's airport security or Delta employees, but they are met and told that their privilege to fly on Delta is revoked. They are not allowed to fly on Delta anymore. And according to the CEO, they're sticking to it. He said he's received multiple letters from people who were told they could not fly on Delta ever again. And letters saying, I'm so sorry, well, I'll never do it again. And can I please start flying on Delta? And they've held to it and said, no. And so, is there such a thing as reciprocity the way there is like with the traffic ticket in one state <laughs> and that goes, but that other airlines would be uh, put on notice about this person's behavior or is it it's strictly internal to each airline that you're I would of? imagine it's, it's each airline. It was just an interview with Delta. This was just Delta policy. Okay. But that could change. Like everything else is very, very fluid at this point. But I mean, that's one example of with the message that that sends is very strong as far as health and safety of not only their employees who they're protecting on these flights as well and in the airports but the passengers as well it's sending a message of you know that they're very they're very much interested in protecting not only their own employees but the passengers as well despite the behavior but you haven't heard too too many confrontations at least as, as far as delta goes it it just seems to be working for them so this is going to keep showing up, in, especially in retail, I'm thinking. And I interviewed a labor union representative for the Disney employees. And so it'll, it'll be very tricky when Disney land, Disney World's already opened up, but I don't know how it's working for them over there, that everybody in that big wide park has to be compliant, the physical distancing and with wearing masks. And I don't know what the employer can how they set the tone is you're in this park you've got to abide by these practices yeah i think that well as far as the employees go you know their their main concern is going to be protecting their employees which is great and then in doing that they'll but the patrons gonna have, yeah they're going to have to enforce certain types of behavior on the patrons and as far as something like that goes they have to choose like delta did you either enforce the policy or you you know, you're too lax and you're not doing your job in protecting everybody. So if Delta were to have this great policy in place and then not enforce it, that's not going to do much. Same with Disney. If Disney doesn't impose, you know, if they impose restrictions on patrons, but then don't follow through on that's holding the them to that standard, then it's sort of hollow. So that's, that's what we watch for. So we're, we don't know yet. Do you have any inkling as to when the next, let's see, CARES Act 3.0 will be pushed out for uh, protecting people that are now, they are looking over the cliff at losing every revenue stream for, for making their household payments. Yeah, it's getting to a point where I think we're going to start to see more of an impact. There's been quite an impact, but a lot of employers have up until very recently, been trying to hold on as much as they can, either continuing to pay employees who can't work remotely. I've had a lot of employers doing that, 
but now the businesses are getting to a financial point where they're not as secure as they were before. Revenues aren't, they're not as secure as they were. Um, they're getting right. to where they have to start managing their own finances a little better. And it's not making sense to pay employees, to continue to pay employees who may not be working, typically because their job doesn't function remotely and they can't bring them back for whatever reason. So I think we're going to start to see a lot of impact on that. And I think that for certain things, the Emergency Family Medical Leave Act and the Emergency Paid Sick Leave portion of the CARES Act, they're extended, well, they were implemented through the end of the year. So it'll be interesting to see if they modify that. So if any of those protections go beyond either get increased or go beyond December. And of course, there's the unemployment benefits, and that's a bit up in the air right now. So we'll have totally. to wait and see how Congress comes down on either side of that. It sounds to me like they're going to, they're absolutely going to offer something. It's just that seems to be they're arguing right now over how much. Right. Well, there are many other intricacies I would so wish we had time to cover, but we'll, we'll maybe we can get back with you at a later portion. The pandemic's going to be around quite We can get back to that. And I originally had hoped we could talk about the Supreme Court ruling on LGBTQ protections of the workplace. I hope we can later do that too, Teresa. Perhaps after Let's say after the November 3rd general election, maybe we could take up those protections at the workplace after the, the, the Bostock ruling. I'd love that. Okay, thank you. Thanks for your time, Teresa McQueen, for setting aside time. I know you're on a, you have a special visit and I appreciate your giving us the heft of your really attuned legal experience for our listeners. Thank you for having me, Claudia. I appreciate it. My guest was... Teresa McQueen, owner and attorney at Sapphire Legal, posting us on the pandemic federal financial disaster assistance for workers and small business owners and other relief and the adjustments being made at the workplace. Thanks again, Teresa. Thank you. We'll be right back after a station break with Madeline Hernice, Chief Executive Officer of Families Forward, updating us on how hard they're working to meet huge needs during this pandemic with rescue packages slowing down. Don't go away. back to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. Returning to the show is my next guest, Madeline Hernice, Chief Executive Officer of Families Forward, here to update us on how households are doing five months into the COVID-19 pandemic. Families Forward is a nonprofit organization helping families in need, offering a multitude of different services. Madeline began her career at Families Forward in 2012 as a housing specialist, and for the past more than eight years, she's been instrumental in designing, developing, and implementing Families Forward's strategic housing acquisition and partnership programs. Under her direction, Families Forward saw an increase of nearly 75% in their housing continuum while maintaining a reputation in the community as leaders in quality care. She comes to us today from her home. Welcome back to the show, Madeline. Thank you, Claudia. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'd like to make this sort of an update from where we last spoke. There's a good deal that has changed. So as I said, we're now five months into the pandemic. Tell us what first comes up as some immediate changes, updates in what's going on at Families Forward. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, at Families Forward, and the last time we spoke, you know, the, the big critical push that we saw was for food. And a lot of that had to do with the chaos that we were all experiencing out in our neighborhood grocery stores, not being able to find basic essentials. And so we saw a huge spike in demand for food services and essentials like diapers. But truly, that shift has changed. Now, we're still seeing an increase, but at our peak in April, we were at about 700 families a week. Yeah. And today, we're down to about 250. We saw a bit of a drop in June, and we've seen a little bit of a spike up, but nowhere near those highs. And where, where we're seeing the majority of our highs are actually in our prevention calls. As you can imagine, and I, and I believe we spoke about this last time, you know, the eviction moratorium wasn't rent forgiveness, it was rent deferment. And just to give you kind of a snapshot, in February, we had about 32 families call us to say, I'm at risk of losing my housing, whether it's through job loss or medical, but I have an eviction notice and I need help. And just in July, we had 176 calls. That is a huge increase and it's increasing every single month. We are just at the tip of the iceberg in this eventual eviction cliff that we are all facing here. There's a lot of families that are truly seeing how the months of, of no income or furlough or reduced wages is really creating a significant hole to be able to climb out of to get themselves even on rent. So from 32 families to 176, I'm just letting that number sink in. And I guess you're the embodiment, powerful statistics to demonstrate the point that the pandemic is real. And that I'm not sure if there's ways that you're able to, other details that we're going to get while we spend this time together, that can make the case with local leadership that it's this dire and, and we are at the cliff. So is there like, I, let, let me use this example with you, Madeline, is that the Latino health access, and we talked a little bit about them before, but they've really been brought on with the county to use their peer-to-peer -peer kind of interventions that the institutional health that Latino health access has, Families Forward similarly has to bring data and bring some amazingly graphic stories to leverage local leadership to sound the alarm a little bit more loudly. Is there an avenue for you to do that like Latino Health Access has done? You know, I think certainly, and you know, Families Forward, we, we have a partnership with Latino Health Access, but through the Family Solutions Collaborative. Yes. And the, and the Family Solutions Collaborative really is that collective impact model. It's agencies working together. You know, if you provide housing to families, you are part of the Family Solutions Collaborative. Um, families Forward, we're in a position where we are the backbone for that organization, but truly it is a collective model. And so Latino Health Access has partnered with Family Solutions Collaborative to be able to help families that are either testing positive for COVID, don't have a safe place to shelter in place so we can get them into a, a hotel. To your question, yes. you know, there's more that we can do. And I think the advocacy that we can share, what are the numbers that we're seeing? Each individual agency, we all are experiencing an incredible surge in demand for services. And how do we accurately share that with our local elected leaders and the community at large? And I think a lot of community members think, well, sure, that might be happening somewhere else, but I don't see that happening here. Or most of our community supporters probably know somebody that has been affected by this pandemic that didn't realize that they might, you know, be in a position to lose their income. You know, UC Berkeley just released a study on how many renter households have been affected by the pandemic, and it was close to a million renter households. I mean, that's an incredible number. That's one in seven households in the state, right? And right. so you, you look around in a room or if you when we used to be able to get together in a room, but if you look around, there's seven of us, one of us has been severely impacted and is at risk of potentially losing our housing. So how we work together in advocacy platforms is something the Family Solutions Collaborative is working on to make sure that we can share the stories of all the providers that are out there, because we are one of many. Because you're, with all of your data and your advocacy, with this pandemic, there are so many fronts, there's so many ways to communicate how this is affecting everyone and how people have their various responsibilities to assume to start to address the increased incidence of cases of COVID. That with all 
the data that you have are, I, I guess for those institutions that have the kind of data that you have, what can you give to the local leadership to make their message more on point and less fragmented than as the CEO, Dr. America Bracho has mentioned, right to the county. Where are you making your point to the local leadership? You know, really with individual cities that we work with, as well as our county officials, you know, we have seen a huge surge of CARES Act funding. And I'm sure you've you know, read yes. about that. And, yes. and now we're, we're in our second round and really looking at how do we create a catalyst with this funding? How do we work with our local elected leaders to be able to speed up a system that so desperately needs attention while we're trying to meet the overwhelming demand for services? How do we do this while well, we have the resources to do so? And so really that local local partnership where we're utilizing the CARES Act funding effectively, looking at the data points, right? So if we see that we have more families that are calling us at risk of losing housing, how do we demonstrate that data to say, now this funding that's available, let's do what we can to keep those families housed so we can avoid the trauma of entering into homelessness while also working with those families that have lost their housing. I mean, that, how do you balance that? And you balance that with the data and you balance that with strategic conversations. And those are happening. You know, I do have to commend, you know, the city of Irvine in particular has invested a lot of money into homeless prevention. And we are one of two agencies that has received that funding. So that's really important for us to be able to get the word out there to say, we have assistance funding, we can keep you housed. And for families forward, if you are a family with at least one minor age child, please call us, please let us know what we can do to help. And really for a lot of the families out there that are experiencing this trauma, this crisis, these unknown feelings, they may have never experienced this before. They don't know to call families forward. And so how they might be reaching out to their local churches and to their school districts and some of those more comfortable resource connections for them. And so I wanna get the word out there that we do have that funding available. Let us be a resource to keep families housed. The hard part about that is that there is no known. How much rental assistance would it take when we don't know what the future holds? We don't know where income will be coming from. How do we help families really pivot their career track, even maybe taking a temporary Band-Aid solution to keep income coming in the door so that when the economy starts to recover, when we start to reopen, they can get back into an income that's sustainable for their family. It's really a balance and it's a challenge. And so really the pivotal piece for us is making sure that data is available for our leaders so they can see how important these services truly are. So the CARES Act funds, do they go directly from the federal agencies to you or are they passed to the state and then to the county and then to you? How immediately are you receiving those? So we know because I'm just thinking of a press conference that the Orange County Board of Supervisors had yesterday when they were rolling out the CARES Act's safe dining program that there's a delay if the money has to go through various entities. Where's yours coming, being passed through? A different avenue. So for example, with the city of Irvine, the funding came from the state to, to Irvine to families forward okay. through, the, through the county, same process, right? Different application processes, making sure that you've got the infrastructure in place to be able to scale up and to meet the demand yes. for services. But what I will say, and what Families Forward is committed to is that the support we have from the community is really critical for us to be able to not turn anybody away because the dollar isn't in our hand right now. What can we do to be able to make sure that we can keep those families housed and work with our local institutions to make sure that on the back end, that 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 funding will come through. But if there's a delay on their end, I don't want that to be a delay for a family. And so it's really a balance. But to answer your question, it is different depending on who is holding the funding, what government entity is holding that funding, whether it's a county or it's a, a specific city. It just depends on, on what their process is. Um, but our promise and our commitment is that we wouldn't withhold any funding from a family as we work through the kinks of the red tape and government funding on the back end. Okay, so that's important for listeners to appreciate that the pipeline is a varying length and varying sort of constrictions, sort of clamps in those pipelines before resources are available for you to assist people in crisis. Yes. 
For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Madeline Hernice. She's Chief Executive Officer of Families Forward. It's housed in Irvine, but virtually uh, the staff are working from everywhere. So I don't know if you have examples. I hope you'll bring them in as we talk about these different sectors here, but to illustrate how it all works. So we're all mindful that we're talking about this unemployment cliff where workers are. Some of them are already, they're over the cliff, but there is going to be even greater numbers coming to you. So you've got things that are coming through the pipeline and you still have to, as you say, you've got to keep, you've got to scale up. You don't know how much more. How are you doing your best job to anticipate whether it's some housing, it's retraining, it's social services to intervene for family safety. I mean, what kinds of preventative, preemptive, anticipatory work can you do at this point, Madeline? You know, really for us, the career services are critical because because the majority of the families that we're seeing that are calling have lost their income, have seen a reduction in wages. Now we still have crisis every day, medical issue, job law, or separation, domestic violence. We still see those families that need our assistance, but the overwhelming majority, it is income related. And so really focusing on what are those trends in the families that we're seeing. And you have to think about, you know, we have a lot of families that we were working with who had struggled in one way or another, perhaps through a domestic violence situation, finally get back on their feet and the pandemic hits. Talk about being, you know, catapulted backwards. And I mean, I'll just share a brief story. We had a single mother with her two sons came to us at the end of last year. We were able to get her out of her car. She was actually working as a, a Lyft driver during the day, dropped off her kids at school, and then at night they would sleep in their vehicle. And she had fled a domestic violence situation. And so we're able to get her into housing. We're able to work with her. We, we go through this cybersecurity training, kind of going to figure out what, what works best for you. What are your skill sets? She really likes computers. Let's pull out on that. And we got her connected to a cybersecurity training program that graduated in March. Now you can imagine this family has gone through yeah. the ups and downs and the trauma of homelessness, the trauma of sleeping in your car, not knowing where you're going to be, getting a safe place over your head, going through a graduation program, and then pandemic hits. And And so when she graduated, she wasn't able to seek work. She's immunocompromised as well. And so how do we bridge her? How do we say, Families Forward is still here to support you. Let's figure out a way to bridge you to an in-home employment opportunities. We're going to have to switch gears. We're going to have to get creative. But the good news is, is that last month she was offered a full-time remote position. And she's actually going to be making $64,000 a year. So as you can imagine, the growth and income from that graduation program from a Lyft driver to a fully reliable annual income is the most relieving thing that a family can experience. Those are the types of stories that it's not just those that have been affected newly, but the families that were already struggling, already on the edge, already seeking services, they have truly been catapulted backwards. When we look at our families, you know, over 80% of them were affected by the pandemic Um, and the families that we're working with already, not to include the new families that are calling and seeking assistance. And 50% of those families were either furloughed or permanently laid off. But you also have to think of the other ways that the pandemic has impacted income job offers being delayed, no job opportunities available, unable to seek work because of childcare or if you have a medical condition and you're kind of balancing that question of, I need to be able to work to provide for my family, but if I go out there, I'm at high risk, I could get really sick and I could bring that back for my family. What's more detrimental? So really being able to pivot, our career coaches are incredible, talented ladies, pivoted during this changing climate and really focusing on, okay, which employers are actively hiring? How do we find bridge positions? They're not gonna be long-term solutions, but they're essential for kind of that short-term solution. And then how do we connect clients to online trainings, keeping up job skills, learning new job skills? Digital literacy is critical. A lot of our families and a lot of people out there may not have the digital literacy to be able to work from home. Let's get you connected to resources, understanding some of those those basic essential computer services. So I think that's been really the critical piece for us to be able to look at what is that wave that's coming? How do we continue to adapt and grow our model to meet the needs of families Again, while we're also balancing the unknown of when their positions are going to be opening up again, when will those 
positions be available because it's not going to be a long time. So we really need to come up with some short term solutions that are sustainable for that family's housing situation. So I'm going to ask this question. I've been trying to ask it in sort of different ways. There's the sort of the supply. The supply is you're getting clients because of the increased incidence of cases of COVID that's creating people remaining in place. People have, we have to keep insulating ourselves from the spread of COVID. And so the supply of your clients, it'll continue to come, come increasingly steeper as long as there is a cultural piece not taking the pandemic seriously. And so I'm going to draw a line here where I think in making the point we can get families forward more help is if we have demographics that are not taking the pandemic seriously and if they were side by side working with other families forward volunteers staff name any party that's involved at stands forward if they saw how graphically people are affected by this that we could perhaps create a cultural shift of working as a whole community together to keep from spreading this disease Absolutely. You know, working collectively as a community has always been one of our values at Families Forward, that community spirit model to be able to support each other, to learn from each other, to hear each other's stories and be able to step into our neighbor's shoes and to have that empathy for our neighbors is really critical. We have seen an overwhelming support from the community. And and I do want to make that point that we're very grateful at Families Forward for the community support. And I think that the more families are impacted, the more it becomes your neighbor, not realizing that the person across the street from you has been impacted and we're hearing each other's stories. And it's not just a problem for the working poor, but it's a problem for everybody. And how do we really learn from this experience and be able to support each other in the community? I think that that's one of the things that we truly do aspire to be able to share that messaging and share the stories that we're hearing, because it's very likely that it could be your neighbor that has been affected. Well, I mean, I think we're all affected. We just it's more palpable, I think, right, with some than others. But, but I guess I'm just trying to figure out how to leverage all the data, all that you have at Families Forward to bring to a demographic that there's a cognitive dissonance about this. And if there's a way so that demographic can be persuaded, we have a problem. Or is it, it's multi-pronged. It's your hard data. It's better optics around the county that we all need to be practicing best possible measures to protect one another. I mean, it's all hands on deck, Madeline. And I'm trying to figure out how we can either with this interview or with other kinds of ways to package your message to drive this message home. So there's no question that we're all in this together. Well, I, I wish I had the answer for you, Claudia, but I think you're right. It's multifaceted, right? It's it's hard data, it's impact, it's stories. It's a combination of that qualitative and quantitative data. And the messaging is really important. How Huge. do we get the word out there? It's not just a, you know, you talk about close to a million renter households that have lost a job. It's numbers on a paper, you know, and how do you share the story and the impact that a child is experiencing when they're losing their housing and sleeping in their vehicle? And And so it's really a combination of it all and and all of us really rallying together as a community and working together to create a hopefully brighter future for the families and children that we serve that are out there, our community neighbors. So I I wish I had the answer and I wish we could work together to to solve those problems. But I, I think you're right. It's a combination of everything. It's making sure that we do our best as neighbors to be able to share the story and make sure that people do take it seriously. Well, I guess... There are some leaders that have fine-tuned their ability to convey a message. I'm going to Lucy Jones, who's talked about earthquakes since the beginning of her career. She comes up with a very pithy, don't share your air. That's all she says. Nothing complicating that message. So is it that we're dealing with so many people's varying abilities to bring out the clear message so people can rally. And some are good neighbors, they just, they've just not developed that ability and others have sort of 
they've learned the art of obfuscating and it's continues to derail our handling this public health catastrophe. So what available funds do you have and what kinds of applications do you have out to shore up any of this assistance that's coming your way and coming hard? Well, I'll tell you, our grants team has been working a million miles a minute to be able to complete as many applications as possible for COVID-related response funding. And so that's working in the private sector, but also in the public sector with a lot of our local cities here. So Irvine, for example, we do have funding available through them. We have not depleted that. And again, we're seeing round two that there's an RFP process. And of course, we will be applying for that because we can see that that's a continuation of the work that we're already starting. So to answer your question, uh, as many resources as possible, we are applying and making sure that we can make those resources available to the families that we serve. And as far as are we tapped out on resources, right. you know, I, I think that the, the good news is, is that the CARES Act funding has come and it's come relatively swiftly. And again, there's another round available. So as quickly as we can spend it, we are looking to make sure that there's avenues to be able to sustain how do we help families moving forward. So there are more resources available for us to apply for. And yes, we are working very diligently to make sure that we can get access to as much of the funding that's available to be able to serve those families. Well, while we talk about resources, this is certainly a good time. We can bring up your special light up the night fundraiser. I want you to talk to all the details on how that's going. You originally planned your gala event before the COVID phenomenon here that where we've been sheltering in place and, and separating. So tell us about what the listeners can contribute to on the August 28th gala that you're going to do virtually. Walk us through what you'll do then. Yeah, absolutely. At Families Forward, you know, typically we do have our gala in in September and it's an in-person event and there's more than 500 people and it's just a wonderful opportunity to, for our audience to feel motivated, inspired, and and to be able to, to give back to the community. But obviously we needed to shift gears and we actually had some pretty creative ideas along the way. And I'm sure some people will be very thankful that we didn't try to get too outside of the box, but we have transitioned into a virtual event, which I'm sure... Uh, a lot of your listeners have seen that that's become the norm. And so Families Forward has transitioned to a virtual gala and it's going to be on August 28th at 7 p.m. And it's called Light Up the Night. And really the opportunity for us to keep it short and sweet. Your time is precious and being at home, being able to join us, we wanna make sure that we make valuable use of your time. So it's short and sweet. And how do we share the impact and how do we celebrate and acknowledge our honorees that have gone above and beyond to support us. A couple of the honorees that we will be acknowledging is our prevention team. So our prevention team started as an idea four or five years ago and really was pioneered by two longtime volunteers, Michelle Dean and Kate Lockhart, they even to this day from home are taking calls for the families that are experiencing that risk of losing their housing. So being able to acknowledge, to show the impact, we want to show everybody out there, this is what we're seeing, this is how you can help. And also to honor our neighbor next door, uh, Futech, who's been an incredible partner throughout the years and as our corporate partner of the year. So it's going to be a wonderful event. Again, we promise to keep it short and sweet. We promise that you can join with your pajamas on, no judgment, but we really want to extend the invitation to everybody and be able to reach those who may not have been able to participate in our events in the past. There will be an online silent auction platform. It'll be open for the week prior. There's some really fun goodies there. And just remember, every dollar that we receive is going straight to the families that we're serving through this pandemic. So any support is greatly appreciated. So are there other events that Families Ford is also a partner of while we're talking about upcoming events for people to keep on their calendars. Yes, thank you, Claudia, for for bringing that up. Families Forward is partnering with the City of Lake Forest to host another food drive. The food drive is going to be August 15th from 9 a.m. to noon at the Lake Forest Civic Center. As I mentioned before, although we're not seeing the high number that we saw in April, we are still seeing a significant amount of demand for food services. 
were around 250 families a week, whereas in February, before the pandemic, we were only seeing about 60 families a week. So again, as the food comes in, it goes right back out, and we really need your support there. We'll also be hosting another food drive with the city of Irvine, most likely in September, but that date hasn't been solidified. So stay tuned and please help us by reposting and sharing on social media so we can get the word out to make sure that everyone knows that there's a drive-through safe process to be able to donate food and essentials like baby diapers and wipes. Okay. Well, are there any personal stories besides the forklift operator now in tech that can bring something home for listeners before we conclude this interview, Madeline Hernis? Yeah, absolutely. We have worked with so many families who have struggled for a long time. And there's one family in particular that I did want to share a small story. And I'd like to try to remove as much detail as possible for confidentiality purposes. But we're working with a family who has been homeless for seven years. And so you can imagine this family and when the pandemic hit, as we talked about earlier, that catapult they were the last in line. We were able actually to connect with them at the end of July. And the, the head of household, they have severe medical issues, which requires for them to be wheelchair bound and also requires that they have to perform some medical procedures just to survive throughout the day. And mm-hmm. as you can imagine, doing that from your vehicle with your family for the last seven years and now having COVID, I mean, it's just the uncertainty and the stressors of that are just heartbreaking. So this is a family that we're working with actively. And within the last two weeks of working with them, which has been really incredible, you start to see those partnerships, that public-private partnership with the Orange County Housing Authority, able to get them connected to a special voucher, get them connected to housing, get them in a safe place, a safe hotel, where they can take care of themselves without having to worry about doing that from their vehicle, and they have a safe place to put their head on a bed at night, and then getting them connected to a long-term supportive option. Because as you can imagine, fixed income with COVID, with everything that's happening, this family is going to need more support and will need longer-term support than, than other families that we might see. So I'm just really proud. I'm proud of the team. I'm proud of the partnership. I'm proud of all of us working so hard to make it happen and make it work for this family who has had so many bumps in the road for so long. I mean, seven years is seven years too long. And so getting this family into permanent housing is just a real accomplishment for the team here. And being able to make sure that it's not about just getting into housing, but getting into a housing solution that is long-term sustainable for this family as they continue to recover. So I wanted to share that. I think it's oftentimes we, we think about families who are only at risk, but truly the work that Families Forward does is working with the most vulnerable to the families that are at risk. And how do we make sure that we are there for families, no matter where you are in your housing journey and you're struggling, we will be there to be able to support you and be alongside you every step of the way. So this isn't encroaching on their privileged identities and that kind of thing, but I'd like to know with that family that's been homeless for seven years, was the statewide room key housing project, was that what came through in the pandemic circumstances, was that the kind of relief this chronically homeless household was given some relief? Yes. Now, Project Room Key is particular to more individuals, but on the family side, we do have access to that funding as well. We do. And okay. we, we were able to get them into a safe place in a safe motel, um, granted the disability and special requirements that she needed with ADAs. So yes, absolutely. That was a pivotal part in making sure that she had a safe place to shelter in place with her children once she was connected to the system. Okay. So as we wrap, Madeline, is there anything more you'd like to say to the moment that leaves me just quaking about what exponential increase of need is coming hard at us without really, without a manual. Is there anything on August 7th that you'd like to also have us think about? The only thing that I'd, I'd like to leave with is that, you know, Families Forward has had a long-standing partnership with our local entities, but I do think that the messaging and making sure that we are shared in our messaging is really important. So being able to, to provide a voice for those that are, are voiceless and being able to share the overwhelming community impact and need is really critical during this time. So 
other than that, you know, I am just thankful for, for the partnerships and I'm thankful for the opportunity to make sure that, you know, we can be there to help these families as they're being incredibly impacted by COVID and the pandemic. Well, Madeline Hernice, with all that's going on, it's really generous of you to give us so much of your time. Thank you for being on Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. Thank you for having me, Claudia. My guest was Madeline Hernice. She's the Chief Executive Officer of Families Forward and the safety net of sorts in Orange County. A continuation of this interview is available on my website, askaleader.com. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, it's the voter package deal. We'll hear from the census staff with boots on the ground, and we'll also take stock of the 19th Amendment's 100th anniversary. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. One more reminder, mask up all, 